My guest today is Dr. H. Richard Milner, author of the recent Reading Research Quarterly article titled Disrupting Racism and Whiteness in Researching a Science of Reading, and the new book, The Race Card. We talk about the importance of drawing from a wide range of types of research in designing our literacy classrooms, the multiple literacies we should be developing in young people, and what effective leadership looks like in this time. This is To the Classroom, and I'm your host, Jennifer Saravallo. Welcome, Dr. Milner. Thank you. Let's talk about research and let's crack open, you know, what research means for for teachers that are wanting to be research informed and taking a look at the research. Why is it important that we think about both quantitative and qualitative research to inform our practices in the classroom? I think it's really important to sort of trouble the way in which quote unquote research is being advanced related to the science of reading. So I definitely, without a doubt, uh, believe that it's a mistake for us to ignore all the important and really deep and rich research uh, about reading, about reading development, about uh, uh, motivation, uh, about student interest. Uh, that, that, that research is so essential. And I think it's also a mistake for us not to look at the evidence, uh, the quantitative evidence as well, right? I think sometimes what happens is we uh, become so uh, focused in on our own paradigmatic way of knowing and our own values and beliefs, and we miss really important um, um, insights about learning, about uh, about students, about families, about communities. Uh, I know, for instance, you know, with you know, that we're still having the phonics whole language you know, debates are it's just uh it's 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 all it's telling of the times i think and it's also telling of uh how little i think we listen to each other you know in in times of, of need i've talked to so many families who um you know families of color families families who live below the poverty line families whose uh, you know, children, uh, you know, their first language is something other than English, uh, who are, uh, you know, are almost, I don't want to say forced into, but they are, you know, their children are in particular kinds of schools where it's, you know, drill and I don't want to say it's just, you know, so it's, it's, you know, the, this, this whole, uh, sort of orientation around, uh, you know, phonics instruction without some of these other ways of, of approaching research. I think missing those voices as well, I think leads us down the wrong path as well. So I think there's a, it's, it's, there's, we, we have to trouble what's happening in this moment in ways that I think, uh, those of us in the Ivy Tower, for instance, and I'm talking about myself here, can sometimes miss because we know, uh, you know, so much about getting students not only hooked to, uh, you know, pass a test, but so that they become lifelong learners and lifelong uh, book lovers and, you know, readers in ways that uh, are potentially uh, sustainable. I'm so glad you're bringing that up because I feel like it's really common. I see these memes floating around social media a lot 
that have some version of the sentiment, I don't care if they like or love to read. I only care if they can. You see, you're nodding your head. You've seen those too. And I, you know, there's this whole science also, right, of motivation and why kids read and and what brings them to reading and what's going to make them continue to read. I know you've written about that as well. Um, So I wonder if you could talk back to that idea of, you know, research-based practices that educators can employ um, that will help readers to not only be able to read, of course, we all care about that, but also that they want to read. No, absolutely. I think it's a mistake to not (laughs) uh, build and, uh, and model, I think, the kinds of, uh, you know, literacy, literacy practices and literacies that we, we, we hope our young people will, uh, will, will, you know, carry with them throughout. I mean, uh, this notion that it's, it's one or the other, I think it's, it's really, uh, you know, either, you know, it's, it's really dangerous, right? Uh, I want our, I, I have, I have twin daughters who are almost 13. They tell me, you know, they, they can give me the, the, exact mathematical, you know, uh, number, uh, for how many days it'll be, but, uh, before they turn 13, but, uh, you know, each summer we read books together. Right. Um, and what I, what I yearn for are the days when I walk in and they are engaged in a book, you know, without my probing or they are, uh, on Amazon and, you know, a book shows up at my door. And, you know, so those are the things that I think are really important. And they start, you know, not because I'm doing phonics instruction with them necessarily, uh, but it is really because we are, we have tried to immerse them in a, in a community of of books. We've tried to model, you know, what we do um, and, and how we find, find joy, you know, uh, and reading, you know, Golden Muhammad is so brilliant in, in pushing us to think about, right? Uh, think about joy, and, you know, so, and so much joy, right? It's really important. I totally agree with you. And I think another thing that I've, I've read that you have kind of called out as a mistake is framing a movement around a deficit lens, like thinking about what's missing or what's wrong with students, whether we're talking about kids with IEPs, students from minoritized communities, um, can you talk a little bit about that and why you why you see this as such a problem? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, as educators, what we have often done is, uh, you know, and probably with great intention, is we we spend a lot of time figuring out what young people don't know, right? What they can't do, and we use that as a way of designing lessons, uh, you know, uh, engaging with families and communities, right? Uh, but, you know, what I think we should be doing, and I talk about this explicitly, is I think we should be really focusing in on what young people do know and are able to do and using it as a foundation from which, from which to build, right? So uh, in my work, I talk explicitly about five areas that allow us to think about uh, assets. One is a curriculum, uh, you know, uh, imperative. That is what we teach, right? Allows us to hone in, zone in to uh, what it is students already know, care about, or interested in, and then amplifying it, pushing it to the next level, 
right? Not saying, you know, you have a hole here and right, but pivoting and making instructional practices, uh, making curriculum practices uh, align with, with what they with what they know and what they're, what they're able to be exposed to. There's a second area related to instruction, right? So it's not only, uh, so, so an educator has to not only think about what they're teaching, or educators have to teach about what they're teaching, but they have to think about how they are conveying it, right, from a, an asset perspective. Uh, and then third, you know, really focusing in on the sociology, the, the, the social interactions, you know, which is often talked about as relationships, right? So, you know, when I taught uh, high school English, I really had to uh, sort of uh, reflect and build on uh, who the student was, but what the student actually brought to the space, right? The many assets, rather than focusing in on, you know, the student has come in and, you know, joked the entire class, period, right? You know, so turning that, what could be perceived as a deficit or a negative into a positive, right? You know, uh, saying, wow, you know, you're, you're, you're our comic relief today. Like we're going to, we, we need the, you know, we need that laughter. So, you know, so using that as an opportunity and that relationally allow us to continue the class and not push that student out. Uh, and then third, of course, assessment. We've talked about assessment. Fifth, of course, is, you know, engaging families and communities. And so just as we think about young people in schools, bringing assets, families and communities as well are inundated with so many assets, right? So many strengths uh, and recognizing those, I think is really important as well. Louis Small uh, in his work related to, of course, funds of knowledge gives us a great entree into the many skill sets that families and communities uh, actually uh, possess have are developing in ways that we in educators and education should in schools should be building on those. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to shift gears now and talk a little bit about I think this is a good segue into your brand new book. It's called The Race Card, and I'll link to it in the show notes for anyone interested in checking it out. A story you start off with in the beginning where you're invited to speak to a district interested in supporting students who are underperforming. I think there's lots of districts, probably teachers out there listening, you know, you have an expert come in, tell us what do we need to do? What should we be focusing on? And you, you talk about how you got the sense that they were looking for a very kind of clear, quick fix. Oh, just do this one thing or swap out the curriculum or do this different teaching practice and we'll be good. And um, you share that after your comprehensive presentation filled with what you called opportunity imperatives that detailed the many systemic institutional challenges that need addressing, that they they kind of felt frustrated or, hey, that's not what we wanted to hear or that's not what we were looking for. Um, I feel as though today there are some loud voices who are arguing for simplifying rather than complexifying um, our approaches to supporting literacy instruction. Um, they're looking for one kind of, I mean, we're seeing it right now in, in New York City public schools. They're like, okay, well, we're just going to swap out the curriculum. All, all's good, right? Just, cha- just change that curriculum for this curriculum. And we're going to suddenly, miraculously now have 100% of kids reading on grade level. Um, how do you respond? Can you share a little bit about how you respond to that, uh, that urge to simplify? Absolutely right. You know, this is this is is complex, dynamic, uh, you know, ongoing work, right? And I think 
uh, educators, we must help those uh, who are attempting to simplify understand the, the multi-layer layer dimensions of this work and uh, and the way we we come together to um, disseminate what we know and and how we uh, you know do the work we do I think is 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 a charge that you know you know like podcasts like this right you know so who listens and how do we how do we get people to listen who really don't understand or don't get it or people who don't even really care to right you know uh, I think those are the those are the kinds of questions that we're constantly going to be uh, faced and I, and I and you know unfortunately uh, I suspect that uh, it's only going to intensify right this this the ideas around you know, uh, streamlining, uh, you, know, uh, re- re- you know, curriculum reduction. We're in a moment where, I, you know, I, I suspect if we, I, eyes have not seen, you know, where I, where I think we might be headed. So, you know, we've got to get ready. I also think uh, that sometimes what happens is educators will, even though they understand that, so many of the challenges we face are systemic and institutional and they're historical and they're deeply rooted and ingrained in the very fabric of, of the country, but also in the very fabric of, of education. Uh, they sometimes are, uh, they feel overwhelmed and they feel uh, as if there's very little they can do. Right. And so, and I think in that sense, uh, we do have to remind educators and we do have to remind the public, right, that individuals make systems, right? So these systems and these these structures are a function of individuals. They're a function of, indiv- of collectives of individuals. And uh, so I don't want I don't want our I don't want your listeners to leave this conversation thinking, oh, wow, you know, this is just so arduous and uh, I, you know, there's no way for me to be able to um, to make a difference, right? Uh, because yeah, I do. That's so believe- important. It's like throw up your hand. It's, it's the system. There's nothing yeah. I can do. You're right. It's individuals right. make up a system. Yeah. Right. And so, how do we how do we use our individual power? How do we use our individual privileges? How do we use our individual fortitude? You know, and uh, in, in a way to build collective forces uh, to uh, to impact to impact change. And I think the modeling of what we do in our work is so important because young people are watching, right? And so our best data point, going back to the question, to the conversation we were having earlier, Jennifer, about research, our best data point, our most reliable data point are young people. Younger people realize, you know, the humanity and the, the, the need to, uh, embrace and to uh, uh, you know to co-construct the, 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 a kind of world where each individual in each community and all of us uh, can thrive and survive and have joy and contribute and you know so so you know my best hope is with young people right uh, and but I also know that we there's so many miraculous and uh, hardworking and, you know, dedicated educators who work with those brilliant young folks every single day, 
to help them to, to pose the questions that need to be posed, to, to co-create structures that need to be uh, developed so that young people can get their voices out and can, can build social action, right? So I think that's, that's, that's what we must do in ways. And, we, and when educators or when those outside of educated, ed- education, the critics who really don't get it, who really uh, see education as one-dimensional or as, as, as you, know, you know, not complex, you know, it's, I think it's our responsibility as educators to help those those folks understand that uh, you know building social action uh, is a literacy endeavor. Uh, you know, is you know building coalitions around social change and and you know and humanity is a social justice is a literacy imperative, right? And so and so making those connections in ways so that it's not seen as Oh, educators are, you know, English teachers, literacy teachers are not teaching, right? Absolutely we are, right? But it is, and it is connected to uh, uh, a project. Purpose. That, yeah. yeah, an agenda, right? So Talk oh, about motivation, oh, right? So, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, talking about this, this curriculum swapping, um, you know, we're in a moment now where people are looking at new materials to give to teachers, which could be seen as a way to kind of, really critically shake up the system and the kinds of things that kids are learning and the kinds of pursuits that they're engaged with. Um, and yet some of the curriculum that I see on shortlists um, has been evaluated by reputable sources like NYU's Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. And I read their recent report looking at some of the commonly used programs that are on shortlists in New York and elsewhere. Um, and they found, and I'm going to quote from the from the paper, that they have deficits that are mostly not being raised in the public, a current public debate about curriculum. The texts, language, tone, and guidance communicate harmful messages to students of all backgrounds, especially Black, Indigenous, students of color, LGBTQIA plus students, and students with disabilities. So that does not make me feel super hopeful, right? If we're trying to maybe improve the way that phonics instruction is is being taught by choosing a new curriculum where maybe the phonics is more robust, but then, you know, these experts in looking at equitable materials are saying, hold up, watch out for the, the text, the tone, the uh, just makes me feel really um, frustrated. And I'm just wondering what, you know, what are educators to do? What's your advice? What would you do if you were consulting with a school district that was about to be adopting one of these, these new programs that you knew had some of these, these challenges or concerns. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we are finding something very similar, uh, you know, in the work we're doing here at the initial, the initiative for race research and justice at Vanderbilt. Uh, I think uh, that the very first thing that we must do is we have to have leaders and we must have educators in the, in the schools who are bringing these issues to the fore, right? So we've mentioned a few times um, uh, about, you know, uh, you know what happens on social media or what we're seeing, uh, you know, maybe in a snapshot on, uh, you know, a new a local news outlet, let's say, for instance. And I don't know what, the, you know, the news outlets in, di- in different places locally, uh, you know, you don't always get, uh, what we know we might get it in, in from a national uh, or even an international uh, syndicated 
kind of uh, uh, program, right? So uh, I think this knowledge dissemination is going to be key uh, in this moment, right? So how do we co- how do we come together in a way to share what it is we know these harmful, uh, you know, curriculum uh, 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 guides, these these harmful uh, uh, you know uh, mandates. How do we how how do we find a way to share what we know in a way that is not simplistic but organized? Uh, and and then how do we also share with uh, families and communities, just as families and communities uh, have come together uh, for the, you know, to, for this backlash against diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, how do we, uh, how do we come together in a way across these different sectors to share what we know and develop a comprehensive, assertive uh, plan to move forward? And my, my point here is not that we are reactive as much as we are uh, tied to the, an offensive uh, uh, agenda to continue to press forward for what we know to be just humane and the right thing to do, right? And so there are elements of what's happening that we should absolutely take into consideration on this offensive, when we say, and I, when I say offensive, offense, when I, when I say when we're uh, moving forward with an agenda that is is firmly committed to to justice, right? Uh, but I don't think that our strategy should be uh, in in response to 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 all of the nonsense that is 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 moving forward, right? Because if we do, we'll get distracted by uh, an agenda that uh, that they're setting, right? So I really do believe that uh, we have enough science, we have solid evidence. We saw huge uh, progress uh, after the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others in 2020. I, I think, uh, you, you know, uh, with you know with the killing of uh, trans uh, people, with you know the push out of uh, Muslim students, you know, all all of these are, are assertive, deliberate attacks uh, at progress. That we were making, um, and we were making huge progress. Let let me be let me be clear. I know the critics would say, you know, we have not come far, but you know, I saw major shifts, albeit uh, in uh, you know short short shortly lived. But I, we saw huge shifts, and what could have been a huge turn uh, for you know a democratized way of living and being, right? Um, and so this is an att- this is an attempt attempt to, um, to to really divert and disrupt justice, right? And it's uh, you know justice for all, right? So um, and so in that way, I would really say that we have to be data driven. We have to make sure that we are not polarizing to the way. And I talked about this in my my presidential session at AERA. Uh, I think we go nowhere fast if our goal is to try to prove one side or the other without looking very solidly uh, at the evidence, right? And, you know, we can go back to the science of reading as a case in point. Uh, that is, 
there are elements of what we know from the science of reading that we should be drawing from, making sure edu- teachers are able to do. Uh, one of my daughters has dyslexia. Uh, and I will tell you for sure that she needed to learn and she took to learn phonics. You know, uh, we still are working with her uh, in, in that area, right? But that's not all. That's not it, right? But when we argue one side of of uh, of a position without taking into consideration what we know from evidence uh, and people's lived experiences, uh, I think we miss the bark and we're going to find ourselves in a holding pattern that doesn't allow us to reach a democracy, to reach, reach a democracy that we should be constantly pursuing because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this is a moment I think that calls for leadership, not just, you know, people that are technically the appointed leaders of a district or the leader of a school, but I think every teacher can be and should be and is a leader. And one of the things that you address in your new book is this concept of frontline leadership. Can you just talk a little bit about frontline leadership and what are some of the tenants that um, all leaders in schools, um, teachers, principals, superintendents, all of us can be um, keeping in mind as we lead in this moment? Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, I, you know, so my work, I've spent my career really focused in on studying teachers, studying uh, instructional practices, working with young people, learning from uh, community and families, uh, you know, throughout my career. And I can tell you for sure uh, that, you know, when I wrote Start Where You Are But Don't Stay There, which really highlights the work of successful teachers, of young people in communities where uh, others might not think they could be successful. I mean, so teachers are, you know, as the young people would say, killing it. You know, they're doing, they're doing, you know, they're going above and beyond to every day, uh, yep. meet every single day to meet the needs of, of young people on weekends. You know, they, they're going over, they're spending their own money to, you know, to supplement curriculum materials. They are, you know, giving students money to help them with uh, graduation materials. They are, you know, I mean, you name it, they're doing it. And and so I think we need more. Uh, and, you know, what Star Where You Are does is it documents in a systematic way what educators are doing, you know, to, to, to move that work forward. And so I, what I really wanted to do in uh, the race card uh, was to uh, – really shed light on the 24 years, 25 years of work I've done uh, learning from real teachers, learning from, you know, st- you know students, learning from community members, studying and uh, uh, getting my head around, uh, uh, you know, policies uh, to, to uh, shed light on what I think has to be done and needs to be done uh, uh, in, um, in schools, districts, uh, you know, states uh, across the U.S. And so uh, I think educators, practicing teachers are frontline leaders, right? So when I say frontline, I mean people who are front and center doing the work of equity, doing the work of uh, teaching, leading, organizing for truth in this country. Uh, so you ask about uh, the tenants. There are sort of eight tenants that I attempt to uh, unpack in the book, uh, and uh, and I try to 
gives uh, uh, specific examples throughout so that it's not, you know, some sort of top level way of thinking. I'll focus on three uh, uh, tenets here just for the sake of time. One is we've, I, I don't know if I, you know, I, I don't know if I can say it any, any other way, but I talk about the necessity for research, right? And so, you know, research in this moment is going to be so critical, but not only research, uh, but, you know, evidence uh, from from young people, but also the dissemination of what we know, right? Because so many people are, are making false claims or flat out lying about what's happening in schools and classrooms. And uh, we've got to be data driven to push back and to demonstrate what we know uh, to be true, right? So, so one big tenet is around building a community of, of research and research probing. And I talk about that explicitly, the kind of probing that should happen and how it can happen in a way that is additive and that's uh, con- you know, not seen as an, uh, something extra to do, but is infused in the very fabric of what the school is, what school does. The second uh, tenet was, that I would stress is around uh, how we talk about what's happening, right? And so we know these are deeply systemic institutional issues that we're facing, uh, but we've got to communicate those in a way to the broader public uh, that uh, motivates and that does not turn people away to believe that the problems are so huge that they can't get involved. We need every person listening to you to join together in the fight for truth, right? Uh, and then the last uh, point I would stress is around uh, centering, and, I, and this is the last tenet I stress uh, in, the, in the book, but it is so central, uh, is learning from and infusing uh, uh, the, the knowledge, the expertise, the questions, the, the love, the, the insights of young people. Right. Uh, young folks are out of the, you know, learning from young people <laughs> is what we must do as we're making decisions about uh, education moving forward. Absolutely. I'm so grateful for this book, for your voice, for your work. And thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. And I am looking forward to uh, you know, listening to the podcast. And I'm hoping that uh, this work makes a difference. I really do. We need it. We really do. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. I now welcome my colleagues, Jerry and Ariel, for a conversation about that interview. Jerry, Ariel, what did you think? Well, I guess I can go ahead and get us started. I think one of the things that's really standing out to me is this idea of teachers, educators needing to understand the historical context, right, of of everything that you um, had a conversation about with Dr. Milner, because if we don't understand the historical context, then we continue to repeat patterns, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm in Alaska now. And um, we just passed a Reads Act here in this state. And I see patterns 
um, that have continually repeated themselves all over our nation, beginning where I started my career in Florida in 1998. We are doing the exact same things like retaining third graders, right, Mm -hmm. for um, not making um, alleged adequate progress in reading. And now we're doing that. And it hasn't worked in Florida since my current teaching career started 26 or 25 years ago. And now we're doing it here in Alaska. You know, one of the things that really jumped out for me was Dr. Milner's call to action around us all being critical consumers of research, right? Like when I think about, for example, the science of reading, um, it's important for us as teachers, as leaders to pause and consider who built and disseminated this scientific evidence, right? And more importantly, I think what Dr. Milner does, and he asks us all to consider, is how might this evidence be strengthened by more racially diverse researchers, right? And not only in addition to the research in the science of reading, but also when we're looking at new curricula, we need to be doing the same kinds of work. We need to ask ourselves the same question. Who wrote it? Do I see my students in it? Does it reflect the population in which I serve, the students in my community? Um, And, you know, it's interesting. It gets me also thinking a lot about how not only do we need to be doing this work as leaders, as teachers, as educators in the field, but also as teachers of reading and writing, right? To get our kids be thinking about um, being critical consumers of research. I think about the strategy, research and recognize the author's authority and bias, right? Uh, the strategy really guides students to learn about the author's background, their experience on a topic. But it also, it doesn't stop there, it pushes students to consider the information that is being included and being excluded. I think that's so critical in this time right now that we pause and do this work that we ask our kids to do. But we as the adults and we as the folks responsible for Um, implementation of meaningful, effective, responsive curriculum to be doing the same kinds of things. Right. And I think, you know, doing this work with children is one of the ways that we can put a Band-Aid on the curriculum that is coming our way that, you know, in Alaska, what they did is offer a large sum of money to school districts who purchased curriculum off of, of their approved list. And so, right, so Interesting. Um, my school district has has done that, right? We, we purchased off of their approved list and, you know, there are issues, right? Um, we look at um, NYU's research with regard to um, evaluating curriculum and it doesn't pass muster, right? However, I, you know, one of the things I'm doing is I think about working with teachers and trying to help them, them be critical consumers is how their children can be critical consumers of this. I mean, first of all, our district is just making a decision just to delete some units of study completely because, you know, we are working in um, an indigenous context and some things just are not acceptable. But um, with those units that we have kept, um, asking kids, right, who's present, who's missing, how you know, how are um, people being represented? Is that truthful, right? Or not truthful? Mm-hmm. Do you have questions, right, about this? Does this make you wonder about things? And if kids can answer, right, those types of questions and do those types of things, then we can build tech sets, right, around these texts that are included in the curriculum mm-hmm. to make it more whole, make it more representative of both hum- of people, right, human beings and humanity, but also of the truth. 
So, Ariel, I think that's such a helpful, concrete example of leadership. You're now in a leadership role at the district level, right? Curriculum and instruction at the district level. So, yes. those sorts of uh, that, that example of leadership to ask those critical conversations and involve the teachers in making additions, deletions, um, revisions as necessary, uh, thinking specifically about the population of students you serve. Another thing Dr. Milner mentioned that really resonated with me is this notion of centering, learning from, and infusing the knowledge and expertise of young people as we're making decisions about education, right? And it got me thinking a lot about as a practitioner in the field, as a leader, as a teacher, as a consultant working with educators, how do we do this and how do we ensure that that's central in the work that we do every day? Um, Jen, you talk a lot about action research and, and the, the, the sort of thinking about how action research is an important aspect in a practitioner's life, right? So that we're responsive mm-hmm. to the needs of, of, of all in the community. Um, and I'm thinking about in an age of sort of top-down reforms and innovations, uh, now more than ever, we need to offset this by the expert knowledge that exist in communities. Absolutely. Um, And I think this insider research or action research is a really good call to action, if you will. Um, I think part of the the challenge becomes is giving folks time to actually lean in and engage with it, right? Like how do we ensure that school leaders, both from the district and the building level and teachers, that there's time built in to do this inquiry work, to, to have inquiry as sort of a stance, if you will. Um, and we think critically about problems of practice that we can help mm-hmm. identify and come to, come to some solutions around. Mm-hmm. Right. And having those, those problems of practice are not deficits in children, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that was one of the beautiful mm-hmm. things that I thought that he that he articulated so well, right? We, we build our practices and all of the things that we do a lot of times in PLCs and those sorts of things around what we perceive to be as deficits of children rather than focusing on their strengths and having their strengths be a springboard. And not just their strengths, their identity and, you know, everything that they are and all of the, you know, the funds of knowledge that they bring to the table. Um, I mean, we know the research says, right, when we are culturally responsive to children, um, they they learn better, right? They retain that information, they process that information, and then, you know, we can stretch them beyond, right, their, their current context. Um, I think it's really important that we um, consider students' strengths and stop this business of oh, let's look at all of this assessment. Okay, these are all the kids in the red, right? That's what happens mm-hmm. at a PLC meeting as opposed to, you know, I, I've i um, been a part of a lot of MTSS meetings as a teacher, of course. And um, I, I've had principals who were like, you, you're so different, right? And how you come to the table. So first of all, the report that I'm presenting to um, the group that's um, talking about this child has a picture of the child on it, mm-hmm. right? So the group is not even focusing on the actual child. I'm like, this is a human being 
This is what they look like. This is what they love. This is what they can do really, really well. Let's talk about all of these things. Let's have a holistic perspective of this child before we start discussing um, our perceive what we perceive to be their deficits, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I've had kids who might be um, striving as readers, but they can do a lot of things better than I can. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and many times we find the way in for the areas of support that they need through thinking. Well, when are they most engaged? Well, what do they love most? Well, you know, where do they really shine? We have to know the kids or we, we, we can't help them grow. I've been thinking a lot about the importance of not losing sight of the research around motivation. And Dr. Miller talks a bit about this, this idea of motivation being deeply interconnected with meaning making. And so often, I think when I look at some of the curricula that's on short lists for districts, I worry that motivation, that joy, that love is getting lost. And I think, you know, we need to, I believe that good structured literacy can include joy and motivation and agency and voice and choice, that it doesn't need to be this or this, it is this end. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can't Mm -hmm. lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and that makes me think about Dr. Milner and how he spoke about how we don't listen to one another, right? I think that that's critically important too. You know, I can say this curriculum that our district has purchased, I actually am not opposed to the foundational skills rate um, work that's done in this. I mean, I think it's beautiful. I think it's better than what we had before. I think it's going to help teachers to understand how children acquire phonological awareness skills and phonics and write all of those things that are critical to children learning how to read. And mm-hmm. the comprehension and um, knowledge buildings parts of this curriculum are not excellent, right? And so, how do we, how do we, you know, we all have something right to bring to the table. And if we can allow ourselves to come out of our silos and actually engage in conversation with one another, um, then I think we can do what's right for kids, right? Bringing things from both sides of the table. I don't think we should be on sides, but you know, that's just the way it is at the moment. Um, and really, truly listen to each other so that we can listen better to children in their communities so that we can instruct them better, right? Absolutely. And it is, like Jerry said, like Dr. Milner mentioned, there is research behind this as well. So if we are really following the research and if we're trying to, the best we can, create a classroom, a literacy classroom that is informed by this research, we have to consider the the motivation, the engagement, um, and yeah, whether kids see themselves in this curriculum, whether they can engage with it, whether they can learn from it, and quite honestly, whether it's harmful. Um, Ariel, you shared some pages from the curriculum you're speaking of. We won't mention the name, but I would put that in the category of harmful. So, you know, things need to be edited and um, critically considered, and that is absolutely the work of uh of leaders and of teachers, no matter what you have, no matter what you have, it's always a good idea to look at it critically and say, is this really serving the kids that are, that I'm working with? 
Right, absolutely. I mean, it would be better if we weren't put in this position in the first place in terms of legislation and then the policy that follows. But if we are to be put in this position, it's incumbent upon us as leaders in education to do what's right for children to find solutions for navigating right this this treacherous territory that we are in. And I think another piece for me is this idea that Dr. Milner brings up around our kids are watching. Our kids are watching. Thank you. Right? Yes. I mean, it's so important to not lose sight of our kids watching. And I do believe that teachers and principals and superintendents and policymakers, they're watching too. Right. They're exactly. And they can learn from us, right? I mean, we are the experts um, in, in terms of education, and you're so right, right? The, the children are watching us, and sometimes we don't even realize the impact, right, that we're having on them. Please support To The Classroom by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Find out more about me and my work at my website, jenniferceravallo.com. Mm-hmm.